is from the book of Psalms, chapter 38. David writes this, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Your arrows have pierced me and your hand has come down on me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. There's no soundness in my bones because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. All my longings lay open before you, Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pounds, my strength fails me. Even the light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay far away. Those who want to kill me set their traps. Those who would harm me talk of my room. All day long they scheme and lie. I'm like the deaf who cannot hear, like the mute who cannot speak. I have become like one who does not hear, whose mouth can offer no reply. Lord, I wait for you. You will answer, Lord my God. For I said, do not let them gloat or exalt themselves over me when my feet slip. For I am about to fall, and my pain is ever with me. I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. Many have become my enemies without cause. Those who hate me without reason are numerous. Those who repay my good with evil lodge accusations against me, though I seek only to do what is good. Lord, do not forsake me. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly and help me, my Lord and my Savior. Thank you, Ellen. Good morning, everyone. Well, just a quick announcement for you before our sermon. Uh, I will not be answering the questions for the AMA today, but I will be interviewing uh, one of our missionaries who we're blessed to have with us today, David Lawrence, and uh, his wife, Chris Lawrence, are with us. Uh, David recently became the senior pastor of Erbil International Church in Erbil, Iraq, and he is joining us today, and he's uh, going to answer your questions on the AMA about their ministry. Uh, before becoming the senior pastor of this church in Iraq, uh, David and Chris served with InterVarsity in the United, United Arab Emirates, and they've been there over in the Middle East for almost 20 years now. And they originally started developing student ministries with InterVarsity, uh, worked with uh, people like the Sherbacks, who many of you know, uh, and now they have a unique opportunity to serve this church as well as develop other language churches in the region. So please submit your questions for that uh, online on the highpointchurch.org live page. You can also submit questions about the sermon. We just won't answer those today. We'll get to those at some point during one of our podcasts. So you may suspect that I was just trying to dodge the hard questions that are sure to come from this sermon, but I assure you that's not the case. But today we are talking about pain and suffering. And this is a difficult topic. It's a very personal topic. It's a topic you probably don't want to hear some millennial preach to you about. And you know, I get that. I, I sort of tremble to speak about this because I know how much pain some of you have gone through in your lives. 
I've had the privilege to hear some of the stories in this church. But, you know, comparing your pain to somebody else, it doesn't really do any good anyway. Not when you are in the crucible, not when you're in the pit, when you are in that dark night of the soul. And the question isn't whose pain is worse, it's how do you deal with the pain that's yours? Our culture, it really gives us little guidance on this question. How do you deal with pain? I mean, we're, we're pretty good at mitigating pain, we're pretty good at hiding it, but we're not very good at dealing with it. But the Bible has a lot to say about suffering. And in Psalm 38, which we just read, we see an example of how to suffer well through prayer with God. This is David's prayer. It's a plea to God from the bottom, from the pit. It's like, it's like we ripped a page out of David's prayer journal at, at the lowest point of his life, or one of the lowest. We don't know exactly when this happened, but it's a dark place. And this is not a story where the problem's dealt with, the enemy's defeated, and there's a happy ending on it. You know, there's no, there's no Disney story arc here, okay? The, the prayer just ends, and, and David's still crying out to God. He's still waiting for God to answer his prayer. But there's a lesson in it, even though it's unresolved. Maybe you feel that you're in a moment like that right now, or maybe you're thinking of a moment when you went through something like this. The question is, what will you do with your moment when it comes for you? Because we will all experience this at some point. We all have a point in our life that's, it's like that point in a movie when the main character faces something where it seems that all hope is lost. Your moment will come, and chances are it will last longer, and it, w it will be darker than you think or expect or want. But what will you do in that moment? You won't respond rightly in your suffering unless you have the right perspective on it, and that's the perspective that we see David have in this prayer. Here's what you need to understand. Your pain is a push towards God. Whatever else it is, whatever else is happening with your suffering, whatever else it's meant to do, it's meant to push you towards God in at least two different ways, which we'll see. But this doesn't happen automatically. There's always a choice when you're in pain. It's a difficult choice. There's always a temptation to do something different. And so we're going to see that there's two choices that we have to make to turn towards God when we're in pain. The first one is this. Turn to the God who disciplines. The first choice is to turn to God, to repent, to turn away from your sin and turn to God. You've probably heard that, you know, repentance is a pretty important thing for Christians. You've probably done it at least once if you're a Christian, but we're stubborn. We don't like to repent. It's much easier to keep going in the way that we're going than to turn around and go the direction that God wants us to go. And so sometimes God has to get our attention. Sometimes God has to show us our blind spots. Sometimes he has to do something to get us to turn around with pain. Discipline, it's, it's the pain that God uses to turn us back to him. So I have to start with probably the hardest truth that I have for you today because it's where this passage starts. Some of your pain is God's discipline for your sin. I'm not going to say which specifically, but surely some of this pain we experience is God's discipline. Some of your pain is your own fault. Not all of it, but some of it. It's not God's punishment for your sin. It's, it's done in love. It's meant to restore you to right relationship with him. It's meant to turn you back to him. 
Now, it's easy for us to accept, I think, that our sin has some natural consequences, right? You know, there's certain things where you do something wrong, and of course, there's going to be consequences for it. You smoke a pack a day, you get lung cancer, you drive recklessly, you end up getting in a car accident, you root for the Detroit Lions, you have seasonal depression. Like, you just, you, you brought this on yourself. Like, there's certain things that you, you just know there's going to be consequences. I think what's harder to accept, though, is that some things don't have that natural consequence, and yet God brings pain on us. It's harder to accept that the pain in your life comes from the hand of God. It's not just some impersonal cause and effect that happens. Somehow there's a personal God behind your pain. But David knows that's true. He knows exactly where his pain is coming from in this passage. He says, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Your arrows have pierced me and your hand has come down on me. God doesn't just allow the natural consequences of sin. He ordains suffering in our lives to get our attention and to turn us away from sin. This pain is meant to push us towards God in repentance. But the idea that God could be causing you pain, that's, it's a troubling one. It's one that causes some people to lose their faith completely, right? If, if God is making me go through all this, like, he's either not good at all or he doesn't even exist. There's no way that a good God would do this to me. I think that objection, it's often put in intellectual terms, but really there's, there's a heart problem that's behind it. See, your pain will tempt you. Pain will tempt you to be self-righteous. It can make you think you have a right to judge God. It will tell you that God is wrong, that he needs to be corrected, not you. It'll make you think you can stand in judgment over God. So yeah, you, you might go to God, you might pray to him, but it's not to turn from your sin, it's to accuse him. It's to tell him everything he's doing wrong to test him. Because if you're really good, God, then you'll make this go away. You'll give me what I've been waiting for. You'll do this. So there's always a choice when you feel the pain of God's discipline. You can let it push you towards God. You can turn to God or you can turn on God in judgment and self-righteousness. Well, David chooses correctly in this passage. We see very quickly his focus shifts from what God is doing in this passage to what he's done. He's talking about your anger, your wrath. It's because of your wrath. But then he says, starting in verse 3, it's because of my sin, my guilt. It's because of my sinful folly. God's wrath is the fitting response to his sin. So David complains to God about the pain. He asks God to take it away, but he never says that it's unjustified. He knows what he's done. And so he turns to God who's disciplining him. He says in verse 18, I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. Friends, I know it's difficult to imagine that a good God would bring you pain for his good purposes. It's difficult to fathom how the, the kind of suffering that David's going through here could, could come at the hand of a loving God. But I think... We're troubled by that partly because we're not troubled enough at our sin. 
We don't see how bad it really is. You know, there's really two possibilities. Either God is some harsh disciplinarian who, you know, just flies off the handle, just goes totally too far. It's either that or our sin is far worse than we ever imagined. I think what we don't understand is that our sin is so horrific, so dehumanizing, so, uh, so evil that the severest of God's discipline is a mercy. It's better than the alternative. It's better than letting you continue in that sin and what it will do to you, what it will do to others. Some of your troubles in life, they're meant to make you troubled at your sin. If you've lived long enough, then all of this talk about pain and suffering, though, it's probably not just an abstract concept. There's something that this brings to mind in your own life. Maybe something you're going through right now. I know some of the stories in this church, some of the pain that's happened. Stories of loved ones dying of cancer, doing time in jail, losing children, of of your dreams dying, the thing that you've been waiting for for years and it's never come. Losing relationships. So you might be wondering, is, was that thing or is this thing that I'm going through, is this God's discipline? Is he bringing this on me for my sin? So I can't tell you for sure, but I want to give you a few principles that you can use to think about it, to think about, is this God's discipline? And the first one is ask God. Don't ask me. Do, do what David's doing in this passage. Do what he does in other passages where he asks God to search him and know him, show him the sin in his life. If you're asking the question, is this discipline, you're ahead of most of us, honestly, because we go through life and we don't think about what we're doing. We don't examine ourselves. We don't see the sin in our life. So ask that question, but, but don't do it uh, like dissecting it apart from God, just studying it apart from him, but do it talking to him. Ask God in prayer. Second principle is this. Don't rule out certain kinds of pain. This is tough. We, we don't like the idea that God would use certain kinds of pain to discipline us. I mean, maybe, maybe spiritual pain, you know, that conviction, the, the avenging conscience that Nick talked about a couple weeks ago. Yeah, we, we can buy that. Like, God would bring that kind of pain on you, but physical pain? Would God use an illness to convict you? Don't rule it out too quickly. We're quick to attribute conviction to God, but with other types of pain, we're, we're good naturalists, right? We just look for all the the reasons, all the worldly reasons that it would have happened. Yet it seems to me that David is suffering physical as well as spiritual pain here. He says there's no health in his body. His wounds fester. He's feeble. His back is filled with searing pain. I mean, how would you expect him to convey physical pain in this passage? He's not, he's not going to say, oh Lord, I have a herniated disc because of your wrath. Like, I, I have kidney stones because of my sin. No, he says, my back is filled with searing pain. And we have other examples in Scripture, scary examples, honestly, where God uses all kinds of pain to discipline us. Read 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says that the Corinthian church was mishandling the Lord's Supper. They were, they were making a mockery of it. And so he says, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. And read 2 Samuel 12, where David, his sin is so great that God takes his son from him. And read Hebrews 12, where we see that God even uses the suffering of persecution by unbelievers as discipline on his children. 
don't rule it out. But as soon as I say that, I need to give you another principle. Don't give simplistic explanations for pain. The Bible says a lot about suffering, and if you take only those verses I just mentioned, if you just take one and let that inform everything you think about pain and suffering, then you will get it wrong, and you will do damage to others and to yourself. See, we do damage when we jump to the conclusion that it's discipline for somebody else, especially. Don't give simplistic explanations for that. That's what Job's friends did, right? Job, he, he lost everything. He lost his children. He lost his wealth. He was sick. And what do his friends say? They come and say, Job, it's obvious what the problem is here. You have some unconfessed sin in your life. God wouldn't be doing this for no reason. Just confess all the sin that you have, and then God will make it stop. Right? Well, what does God say? He says, no. Job hasn't sinned. You guys are wrong. And Job calls them miserable comforters, because that's what they are. <laughs> Not good friends. And then, of course, in Jesus' day, this question came up. There was a group of Jewish people who were, who were slaughtered by Pilate horrifically. And then there was a tower that, that fell on some people, just a, a freak accident. And people come to Jesus and they say, did those people, were they worse sinners than everyone else? And Jesus says, no, it wasn't. But you're all sinners. So we can't make a, correct, a direct correlation between sin and suffering all the time. We can't just give a simplistic explanation like that. If you have a worse life, that doesn't mean you're necessarily a worse person. That's moralism. That's too simplistic. And honestly, God gives us all better than we deserve. There's not a direct correlation there. You also suffer because you've been sinned against and because you just live in a sin-broken world where bad stuff happens. And it's not one of those reasons or the other. It can be all of them. Why did you get cancer? Why did you lose your job? What's the reason? What was God doing with that? Was it to, so that you could be a witness to other people in your suffering? Was it to discipline you for your sin? Was it so that, was it to discipline a, a family member who would uh, see this happening and end up turning back to God? It's probably not just one thing. God can be doing a billion things with your pain, and there's a billion reasons for it, and your job is not to figure out all of them. It's to figure out what you're supposed to do in your pain. Would you consider that one reason might be that you've sinned and that God is trying to discipline you and turn you back to him? So here's one last principle. Identify your idols. See, God is probably not disciplining you because of one discrete sin that you did. A lot of times we think about sin that way, like, like God is, is tricky, like he, he's just up there waiting for you to break the rules. So you be like, ha, you, you, know, you stepped on the crack, now I'm going to break your mother's back. You know, no, he's not up there, it's it, like waiting for you to break some little rule. So your job is not to kind of superstitiously look about like, all right, where, what's the sin that I did? What did I do wrong? No, God wants to reveal the idols in our hearts. The, all the discreet actions of sin, they're, they're just the filthy water that flows out of the cesspool of our hearts. And that's what he wants to get at. So identify your idols. I talked to a woman in our church who tragically lost a baby to a miscarriage. And then after that, they went through years of infertility, years of just waiting 
And they'd always wanted to have kids. They wanted to have them early, have lots of kids. And that's a good desire. And after years of waiting, she was just consumed by her pain and angry at God. Now, how can he do this to me? Why would he do this? Is he, is he punishing me for something? Why do other people get the thing that I want? And I've been obedient. What, and this is what God gives me in return? This is how he rewards that? Why me? Well, finally, she ended up talking to a friend about it who showed her the kind of love that God shows us. Sometimes it's tough love. See, this friend, she didn't give simplistic answers for sin, or for, for, for the pain that she was going through, but neither did she let her off the hook. She didn't let her remain in her sin. She helped her to see how she was idolizing motherhood. She was idolizing the, the control over her life, having all of her dreams exactly how she wanted and expecting God to give her things that he had never promised to give. She saw how self-centered she'd become, how focused on her own pain she'd become. And God used that to turn her back to him. But was it discipline? Like, was all that suffering that she went through because of her sin? God never gave her a tidy answer to that question. That's not the question he wants you to ask. It's not, why, how did I get here? That's not the question that God wants you to ask when you're at the bottom. He wants you to ask, what do I do now? What will you do when you're at the bottom? Will you turn to God when he disciplines you, or will you turn on him in judgment against him? David shows us one more thing, one more choice that we need to do to move towards God in our suffering. It's the choice to wait on the God who saves. There are layers to David's pain here, as there always are in life. It's not just one thing. You might be rightly suffering the consequences of your sin, while at the same time suffering unjustly at the, at the hands of others. But even that pain can be a push towards God. He doesn't just discipline us, he saves us when we wait on him. So on top of all this pain of discipline, David is feeling the pain of abandonment. The people who are supposed to be closest to him, they have left him. He says, my friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay far away. You know the worst part? It's because of his wounds that they've left him. It's not for no reason that his friends have abandoned him. It's because of everything he's suffering, because of everything he's gone through. Some of you know what that's like. People don't know what to say, so they say nothing. People don't know how to help, so they don't help at all. People don't want to be guilty by association, so they stay far away from you. People still see you through the lens of your sin long after you repented of it and turned away from it. They're still punishing you. People are far less forgiving than God. It's lonely sometimes at the bottom. There's yet another layer to David's pain as well, because now he feels defenseless. It's as if his enemies are closing in to destroy him, and his friends have all left him. His strength has left him. His friends have left him. It feels like God even has left him. Every ally is far away, but his enemies are close, and they're, they're just hell-bent on his destruction. They, they set their traps. They, they talk of his ruin. They scheme and lie. It's their actions, their words, their thoughts. They're focused on his destruction. Now, you may not think that you have enemies like this, but we all have spiritual enemies. 
We all have demonic enemies. There are devils whose, whose only goal in life is to ruin your life. And, and they would gladly rejoice at your downfall. And at times, it feels like they're winning. David feels so weak here that he can't even tell off his enemies. He says he's, he, it's, he's like somebody who cannot speak. He's like the mute and the deaf. He can offer no reply. His enemies are gloating over him and there's nothing that he feels he can do in return. There's always a choice, though, in a moment like that. On the one hand, you can give up hope. You can just admit defeat, just lay down dead and say it's, it's over. On the other hand, you can lash out. You can be like a, a cornered animal and attack back. You can return evil for evil. But there's a third way. Nick mentioned this a few months ago. The third way is waiting on God. That means doing everything that's ours to do and nothing more. It means not just accepting your fate, but also not sinning. It's resisting the temptation to give up as well as the temptation to grasp at some sinful solution that God has not allowed. In David's case, it really looks like there's nothing he can do. He's, he's doing good, and yet it's not being returned. He says they repay good with evil. He's doing good to his enemies, but it's not going to save him. It's that kind of injustice that will make you think that you're justified to do anything in response. But, God, but David will not do more than God has allowed. But neither does he give up hope. He's not being cowardly. He hasn't accepted his fate. He's not just laying down and dying. He's still praying. He's like Job. Remember when he lost everything and, and even his wife told him to give up. Job's wife said, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die already. Will you choose to wait on God even when it looks like all hope is lost? I want, to, I want you to see one thing in, in the structure of this psalm. It, it begins and ends with a petition, and then basically the whole thing is just a complaint. He's just lamenting to God everything that's, that's happening, everything that's going wrong. If you think that you can't complain to God and you can't bring your pain to him, you're wrong. God wants to hear it. That's mainly what David's doing here. And yet, in the midst of it, there's just two little glimmers of hope. He laments fully and in faith. There's hope in the midst of his pain. And we need to have this very same hope if we're ever going to wait on God at the bottom. There's two reasons for his hope here. One comes in verse 9. He says, All my longings lie open before you, Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. Do you believe that? None of your pain is hidden from God? Even when it seems like he's not there, he's there? Even when it seems like nobody sees what's happening, he sees? Even when it seems like nobody is talking back to you, nobody hears you, he hears? He's with you? And here's the other reason for David's hope. He says, Lord, I wait for you. You will answer, Lord my God. Remember, he said, I, I can't answer my enemies. There's nothing I can say in response, but God will answer. Do you believe that? You may have no answer for your enemies, but God will answer. You may have no way to save your reputation in this life, but God will vindicate you. You may have no way out of your situation, but God will save you in the end. You may have no way to avoid your own death, but God will raise you 
on the last day. God may not save you the way you want. He may not save you as quickly as you want. But he does save those who wait for him. And there will come a day, even if you're still, even if you die and you're still waiting, there will come a day when God rights every wrong and corrects every injustice and wipes away every tear. And friends, there's a, there's a reason for our hope that we have that David could only imagine. He had no idea that one of his own descendants would be our guarantee that we can have this same hope. Jesus Christ is the reason for our hope. He's the guarantee, not only that God knows your pain, but that he will save you from it. Your suffering is not hidden from God. He knows it. He knows it very well because he experienced the same thing himself. He became a man for us. He went all the way to the bottom for you. He didn't save you from afar. He came near. He experienced the same kind of pain, horrible physical pain. He was crucified, hung on a cross. He experienced a moment so dark the sun stopped shining. He was abandoned by his friends, remember? They said they didn't know him in his darkest moment. He was surrounded by his enemies. There was nothing he could do. He was mocked. And yet, he did not sin. He did not give up hope. He also did not grasp at something that he shouldn't do. He did not sin against them. He did not strike back. He experienced temptation like you have never experienced it because he never succumbed to it. He felt the full weight of temptation because he never gave in. And he did it for you so that you would know that he knows your pain, that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness. He knows what's going on. And also on the third day, God raised him from the dead so that you would know that there is hope, that there's salvation for those who wait on the Lord, for those who wait in hope. He was rescued. He was vindicated over his enemies. And he was raised from the bottom so that you would know that if you hope in him, you will be raised as well. God saves the one who waits on him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this is a difficult teaching that sometimes we have to wait to be saved, that we can't just save ourselves, that sometimes the pain in our life is our own doing, and it's you trying to turn us back to you. Oh, God, I pray that you would work in people's hearts today, that they would be struck by whatever you want them to hear from this. Lord, whether it's idols that need to be thrown down so that we would worship you alone, or whether it's trusting in you for salvation, whether it's somebody trusting in you for salvation for the first time, somebody who's hopeless, somebody who is trying to solve their own problems when what they really need to do is trust in you or whether we need to do that for the thousandth time, Lord. Help us in our unbelief, Father. Thanks that you're with us. Thanks that you know our pain, and thank you for Jesus Christ, our hope, our salvation. We pray all this in his name. Amen.